Right, what was I going to talk about? So we started um, start Sunday evening. She's going to pick up from where she left off, so that's something really not to miss. But I'm going to go back to, to identity. And I'm going to start off by going to a story in the Bible that I'm sure we're all familiar with. So it's Luke 15, and it's the story of the prodigal son. Well, that's what it's commonly known as. Probably a better title for it is the parable of the good father. And I don't think I'm going to read it all, but I'm going to paraphrase it. But it's there, Luke 15, starting from verse 11, if you want to sort of read it and dig into it. Because throughout this story, there, there are times where, where actually we think, actually, what was, what was going on there in the relationship between the father and the son, the relationship between the son and himself? that I think, you know, mirrors so much of what we can go through and so much of what life can throw at us. So the son starts off at the beginning of the story saying, you know, Dad, do you know what? I, I want your money. I want the inheritance that's due for me. Even though you're not dead yet, I want it now. You know, which, which to some degree is pretty much the same as saying, to his dad, do you know what, dad, it would be better if you were dead. It would be better if you were dead so I could get that inheritance that I want now. But, you know, give it to me. Give it to me. And do you know what the father does? He gives it to him. He gives it to him. So, so there's this, this relationship there where, where, where there's just complete rebellion. You know, the son is so far away from the father, so far away from a heart connection with the father, that he's saying, you know, dad, it'd be better if you were dead, because I want what's due for me now. The son then gets it, and he goes away, and he completely forgets about his dad. He completely forgets about his brother and his family and where he was from, and he lives the high life for a while and he fritters away his money until it's all gone and he realizes the friends that he thought he'd made weren't actually friends and he ends up in this place firstly of loneliness of loneliness you know what I did have these relationships that I did have I've thrown away the relationships that I then thought I had turned out to be fake and not to be real. And he's left isolated and he's left lonely. But more than that, he's, he's left in shame. He ends up being so destitute that he's you know, living on the streets looking after pigs and realizing that the pigs are eating better than him. And then he realizes that, that even the servants of his father's house, because where he came from, he was a privileged guy. You know, his father was, was a rich guy, a landowner. He had servants. And he realized even the servants lived way better than him. But this guy, he was in complete shame. And he, he thought, oh, maybe if I go back, maybe if I go back, I'll be allowed to be one of the servants. You know, this, this is where his identity had got to. So his identity started off in complete rebellion, thinking, actually, it's all about me. It's all about what I can get. 
and his identity was completely wrapped up in himself. He then went away, stuff happened, and shame came on him. And his identity at that point was, I'm not worth anything like what I used to be because of what I've done. So he took responsibility, but as a result of that responsibility, what he thought of himself was down here. You know what, I definitely can't get back to where I was, but maybe, maybe I can move up slightly from where I am at the moment. So he heads home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, to me, that seems a bit of a coincidence. That, oh, the father happened to be looking into the distance when his son was coming along. To me, what would be far more likely is his father was desperate for him. Desperate for him to come back. So he made a habit of looking out. Of, of looking into the distance, of hoping, of praying. Oh, I just hope my son comes back some point. And as his son was coming back, the father, remember this dignified older man, didn't wait for him. The father went running to meet him. Running to meet him. And when he got there, he gave him his robe. He gave him sandals. He, he put a belt around him brought him back home and threw a feast, threw a feast and said to him, son, everything that's mine is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. Now, back in, in the culture of the day, when, when a son had disrespected the father in such, such a manner that, that this son had, the, the villagers, I'm told, would have tried to protect the, the respect and the dignity of the landowner, who was the father. So what was customary then is, is when a, a prodigal son would return who disrespected the father in such a way, is they would smash up the pottery and they would use the broken bits of pottery to, to, to beat up this guy, but also to lay a trail of broken pottery that he would have to have walked over. So the father running out to the son was actually rescuing him. And putting the robe on him and, and putting a ring on his finger and giving him the sandals. He was saying, I actually restore you. You know, symbolically, I restore you to everything that you were. I restore you to everything that you were. But this son didn't expect that. And, and if he'd listened to, to that doubt, to that shame, you know, to this identity of, you know, I'm just not worth anything because of what I've done. You know, he wouldn't have gone back and he'd never have been restored. And it was only because of the love of the father who was so extravagant in that love that he took that son and he pulled him right up back to his rightful place as his son and as his heir. Now, this boy's elder brother who had been there and had been faithful and had been working the land and had been, you know, been diligent in everything that he'd done and hadn't run away and hadn't squandered the inheritance. His view was, do you know what, that's just not fair. You know, who is this guy who can do all of that stuff that I haven't done and yet he's restored back to where I was, back to where I am now? 
And the father said to the older brother, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this, this parable that we're also familiar with, I think, I think describes beautifully God's view of who we are. And God's view of who we are is no matter what we've done, when we even make the slightest move back to him, he runs to us and he puts that signet ring on our finger with the family crest on. Say, do you know what? You're, 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 you're back up here again. He puts that royal robe around your shoulder and says, do you know what? You've got the richness of my family. He puts the sandals on your feet so that you can walk over that broken pottery that others are trying to put in your way to stop you getting back to where you came from without it hurting your feet. That's what the father does for us because his view of us is so often very different to our view of ourselves. But our view of ourselves can absolutely rob us of being who God created us to be. And even worse than that, it can make a mockery of the cross. Because Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that you would have life and have it to its fullness. So if our view of ourselves, if shame comes in, oh, well, we're not worth it, you know, it's just not good. Is it? You know, I've done all of this stuff. Oh, I'm never going to get back or whatever. It's making a mockery of what Jesus did. Because Jesus died that we could be fully restored to be everything that we were created to be. Amen. Holly mentioned last week in her talk something that, that, that I often use as an illustration. And rather than just allow her to rob it, I'm going to use it again. So, it, and, and actually... It comes from, comes from Mike Bickle, who runs the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And, and he has this illustration, which it, in fact we'll do it, where, where we, th- you know, have a think. Think about God. What do you think his predominant thoughts are towards you? And you've got three choices. Are his predominant thoughts towards you that he's mad that he's sad or that he's glad. Clever, isn't it? They all rhyme. You know, is he mad? Actually, he sees you as this prodigal son who squandered this inheritance. You've done all of this stuff that, that just isn't right. You've let him down time after time after time. And he looks at you and he can't help but be mad at you. Or, in fact, are his overwhelming thoughts towards you that he's sad oh it just could be so much more if only you did this if only you prayed a bit more if only you worshipped a bit more do you know we could have a better relationship with this and you know my son died that we could and you just don't and it just makes me a bit sad or in fact are his predominant thoughts towards you that he's glad and glad doesn't really do it justice you know that he he delights over you with singing that he, he looks at you, and every time he even thinks about you, he goes, wow, look at them, aren't they amazing? Aren't they perfect? Aren't they incredible? And do you know what the right answer is that last one? Whenever he looks at you, he, he, he almost loses control because of his excitement and his joy at you. 
his excitement and his joy. And yet our view of the way God thinks of us completely impacts our relationship with him. You know, if we think he's mad at us, you know, the way we live our life, the way we pray, the way we go about doing things is going to be incredibly different than if we think, actually, you know, God looks at me. Oh, he's delighting over me with singing right as we speak. You know, he, he loves me so much that he knows how many hairs are on my head, which doesn't mean he loves me less than you. But, you know, it, he's absolutely ecstatic about you. And just like that younger son, there is nothing that you can do to change that. There is nothing that you can do to change that. And as soon as he sees you making the tiniest bit of a move towards him, he sees it. And he's there sprinting at the top of his speed to come to you, to put the ring back on your finger, to restore you to the place that he's, he's, he's made ready for you. And what is that place? Well, let's move to Romans 8, which Holly again looked at last week. But repetition's good, isn't it? So I'm just going to read a few verses from Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you can live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So, just to recap where we've got to. The Father sees us and his passion and his delight is to see us restored to the place that he's prepared for us. Romans 8 tells us what that place is. So it says that we are children of God. The spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Which means our identity is as sons and daughters of the God who created the whole universe. You know, our identity is as sons and daughters of the God who not only created the whole universe that is so big we can't even understand it. He's also so detailed that, you know, he makes the atoms and breaks them down and breaks them down that we don't even understand the smallest component or the biggest component. That God says that you're his kids, that you're his kids, and he's adopted you. Which means we're no longer orphans. We're no longer People who, who, who are just here, not knowing our parentage and not knowing where we're going, were adopted to be his children. And what happens when we are his children? Well, it says a little bit later on in that passage. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. So, hang on a second, what does that mean? So, we're not just God's children that means we're also the people that are going to inherit everything from God and co-heirs with Christ. You know, so God has reserved this place for us. This is the way, this is how much he thinks of us. This is how much he thinks of us. That he, he, he runs to drag us back in 
to put that ring on our finger like he did with that son, with the family crest on it, to put the robe round your shoulders so that we would know who we are in him. And who are we in him? We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that God has for Jesus, we're now sharing in. Is it, is it just me or is that pretty mind-blowing? You know, the creator of the universe, who's up there with his son Jesus, he's saying all of us are now co-heirs with Jesus. Co-heirs with Jesus. In fact, I'm going to fast forward again to Hebrews 10. So Hebrews 10, we're not going to read it all. This is a, a passage about sort of the, the, the impact of Christ's sacrifice. And I'll start from verse 8, I think. So first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, and he's talking about Jesus here, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And then this verse 14 is the one I really want to focus on. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So by this one sacrifice Jesus made, it says he has made perfect. So by this one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. So do you know what he's talking about when he says he has made perfect it's talking about you and me. So, so it actually doesn't matter what we think about ourselves. In the, because when God looks at each of us, he says, wow, they've been made perfect. They've been made perfect. And you know what? In, in the Bible, there's a difference between the truth and the facts. The truth is actually way more important than the facts. So the truth is what we read in the word of God. And the truth says that we have been made perfect. You know, the facts that we see in front of us might not always live up to that. I mean, sometimes they do, what can I say? But no. But the truth is more important. And what it says in verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. So we're not just made perfect for a split time and then we can ruin it. We have been made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. So in some versions, that bit saying those who are being made holy is translated as those who are sanctified. And sanctification is the process of getting into our experience what has already happened. So there's a process to go through. So this, this perfection that has already been ascribed to us becomes our reality. That's what sanctification is. We become more holy as we become more Christ-like, etc., etc. And that's something that, that Jesus has paid for, but it's also something that we have to do our part with. But you know what? No matter how well we do that, 
he looks at you, he looks at me, and he still says, wow, you're perfect. You're perfect, and you've been made perfect forever. There's nothing you can do that will ruin the perfection. Because Jesus and what he did on the cross was absolutely perfect. There's nothing you can do. You know, the, the, the great old saying you've probably heard, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Because do you know what? It's what Jesus did on the cross that makes all of that possible. So our identity is not about how we feel. Our identity is not about what we've done. Our identity actually comes from the fact that the creator of heaven and earth made us in his own image and that he sent his son so that we could be restored to be sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ, sitting in the holy places up with God and his son Jesus. That's our identity. And as Holly was saying at the beginning of her talk last week, that's a big thing. And, and the rest of Romans 8, pretty much, is talking about how important it is that we get this. And how creation is groaning in eager anticipation that we get it. That the Holy Spirit is interceding that we get it. That Jesus even is interceding that we get it. Because if we get actually who we've been created to be, do you know what? Nothing's going to stop us. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, he says twice that he is strenuously contending that the Colossians will get the, the full ramifications of what it means to understand Christ in them, the hope of glory. And he's not just saying, oh, I'm praying that you get it. He's saying that he's strenuously contending because it's as we get this, we grow and we become mature in who we've been created to be. We start to, lead, to live life to the full. And do you know what? We start to then really lead people to the Father. You know, Jesus said that, that his mission was to reveal the Father. And he's passed that mission over to us. And you know what? We can't reveal the Father unless we're really walking in the family name. And to, unless we've got that ring of authority on our finger, we've got that cloak around us. Because there's something, you know, if you really know who you are, the way you hold yourself is different. The way you pray is different. The way that you respond to other people is different. The way that you worry about criticism is different. The way that you, you view other people who may have more than you is different. The way that you get worried when this happens or that happens is different. The way that you view your Father in heaven and the relationship that you have with him is different. The way that you think about your prayers and whether they might or might not be answered is different. You know, when we really get what it means to be children of God, seated in the heavenly places as co-heirs with Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything. A story I heard um, a little while ago, which I think illustrates it really well, was actually about Gladstone and Disraeli. Now, two of our country's probably greatest prime ministers, 
and, and I'm going to go through this without mentioning any politics that's going on at the moment. But two of our country's probably greatest prime ministers representing different parties. And there was a cleaner at Downing Street who actually served both of them. She cleaned their private apartments. Um, I think, try and get the order right. I think it was Gladstone first and then Disraeli. And, and someone interviewed her as she retired. And uh, they asked her first of all about Gladstone. Oh, what, would his, what was it? like the first time you met that great man and she thought about it for a while and she said wow it was amazing and and I just came out of meeting him that first time thinking wow he's one of the greatest people I've ever met the conversation went on and they they came on to talk about Disraeli and they asked the same question about Disraeli saying well what was it like the first time you met Disraeli and she thought about that for a while and she said well do you know it was amazing I came away from that first meeting of meeting Disraeli thinking, wow, I'm one of the greatest people that's ever lived. Because there was something about the way Disraeli spoke to people. He didn't care people thinking that he was great. He wanted them to know that they were great. And that comes from security and knowing our identity. And I don't know what the Israelis' faith was or anything like that, but it just illustrates the point of, of just the small differences being secure in our identity can make. Because Jesus, who was the most secure person ever in his identity, Jesus, who was the Son of God, Jesus, who, who could you know, click his finger and change everything that happened, what did he do from his place of identity? He took off his belt. He got a bowl of water. He knelt down in front of his disciples and he washed their feet. You know, our identity then works out in being so secure in who we are that our, we're not impressed with us, we're impressed with him. And in fact, we're so impressed by him in other people as well that we just want to serve them to see all of it come out. You know, Christ in you and in you and in you. And, and, and the more that Christ in all of us comes out, the more that together we create this rich, rich tapestry that reveals the Father to a lost and broken world that really needs to see it. In fact, Philippians 2, which oh, just about run out of time. Philippians 2, read it yourself. But, but it's this great, this great passage where Paul's talking about Jesus and he says, says you know, this, this person who deserved everything humbled himself even to death. And then it goes on and says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And that therefore is important because the word therefore means what happens after is linked to what happened before. And what happened before, Jesus humbled himself to everything, even to death. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest places, that at the name of Jesus, every name must bow. So we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. But that doesn't give us entitlement doesn't mean that we deserve things. It doesn't mean that we fight for what we think is ours. 
it means that actually we're the securest, the, the most peaceful people on earth because we really know who we are. And we know that, that we're co-heirs with Christ to everything that is God's. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to strive. We don't have to fight for what's ours. Because do you know what? We're already co-heirs. We're already seated. That seat is there with your name on it. God is looking down at you. He's saying, wow, you're perfect. Wow, you're perfect. And you're perfect forever. You're perfect forever. And our response to that, I think, has got to be, we've got to do our part to work out when do we have tendencies of being an orphan? Do you know what? They, they, they crop it. It's like an onion. You know, you can always go deeper and you can always go deeper and you can always go deeper. When do we have those tendencies? And God, I'm, I'm sorry, I, re, I repent of, I don't know, I repent of getting defensive when someone might think I've done something wrong because that's something I do. I, I'm sorry, Lord. Show me why. Show me, show me that orphan tendency. And Lord, heal me of it because I want to be restored so that, so that I'm a son, so that I'm adopted, so that I react in this life in the way that Jesus would. I react in this life from a position of being so secure in being your child. Because as we get more and more of this, do you know what? The world changes. The world changes. That's why in Romans 8, it says that creation is groaning in eager anticipation that we get this. That's why it says the Holy Spirit is interceding that we get this. That's why it says Jesus is interceding that we get this. It's all in Romans 8. Have a read of it. You know, those three things wouldn't be written there if it wasn't important. Because the more we get this and step into it, the more we reveal God to a lost and broken world, the more we reveal not just him as a nice God, but a God of power, a God who transforms things, a God who, who sees problems and has the whole resources of heaven to throw at that problem and to fix it just like that. That's who we've been created to be. But we're not going to step into it until we realize that's who we've been created to be. So let's pray. Everyone on your feet. Before the kids come out. Yeah, Lord God, I thank you that what Jesus did at the cross was perfect. And in fact, just echo this or even say it out loud. I want you to say, Lord God, I thank you that Jesus has made me perfect in your eyes. I thank you that I am your child. And I thank you that that means I am your heir and co-heirs with Jesus. Lord God, I pray that you speed up this process of being made holy. So that the truth mirrors the facts. 
and I live as your child. In your name, Jesus. Amen.